Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today talking to the architect of Bayou Soul, Mark Broussard. You can now listen to episodes on the BrotherPod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. You can also interact with us directly through the talkback feature, ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at BrotherPod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk to recording artist, touring musician, and father of four. From Karen Crow, Louisiana, Mark Broussard. Broussard, how are you? What's going on? Or shall I say Broussard? Yeah, the emphasis is on the first syllable. <laughs> yes, that's what I got from when we met a couple weeks ago. It's nice to have <laughs> you. Thanks so much for coming on to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod. Yeah, so I just was, uh, you know, it was funny. I was, we were talking, we met a couple weeks ago backstage. Uh, you actually are one of the few guys that have met two of the brothers and the Brother, Brother, Brother world at the same time and uh, we met through a, a mutual friend Spooky Daily and just started talking and then I was like wow this guy uh, this guy's got a lot of stories to tell um, so before you know instead of me sitting here reading your Wikipedia page or whatever uh, tell us just give us a sort of brief history of the Mark Broussard career well I started out on stage at five years old my father was a professional guitar player at the time uh, supplementing the family income uh, on weekends and holidays and whatnot by playing music. And uh, he found out I could sing after we watched Back to the Future. I saw Mike J. Fox sing Johnny Be Good. And I, I, my, he, my dad had a 67 Cherry Red ES-335, just like Marty McFly had in that movie. And uh, for whatever reason, it, it just stuck with me. And my dad taught me the words the next day. I, I couldn't read, but I memorized the words pretty quickly. And he had me on stage that weekend. Uh, fast forward to, you know, middle school. I started, you know, singing in choir. In high school, I sang in the show choir. Went to work at a church uh, about 45 minutes south of, of my hometown in New Iberia, Louisiana, after high school. And did some music ministry there for about a year and then just kind of wallowed around as I turned 20 a buddy of mine called up and said he had a band that he was managing he wanted me to come and open for him and uh, I went and showed up played the songs that I had in chronological order at that point which was not a very good order <laughs> to say the least but I had a few decent tunes in there and the, there was enough buzz about me in the in the area to cause a a local gal that had made a, her bones in the music business out west, who had just returned home here to Lafayette, Louisiana, to uh, open a sushi restaurant. The first 
of its kind down here. Uh, that place ended up doing really, really well. But that's another story. Um, anyways, she shows up, hears me play a few songs, introduces herself, uh, says, look, give me a call on Monday. I call her up. She says, I'm flying you to the West Coast in January. I said, oh, really? That's amazing. She uh, ended up having the stroke to be able to call the CEOs of Warner Brothers and DreamWorks and Capital and, like, everybody, basically, while she was on her way to their offices. Wow. And uh, they just, like, welcome us with open arms. But I didn't really have any kind of a product at that point. Uh, I remember that trip. It was January 27th to February 3rd, and this is 2002, 2000. I believe. So this is before you had momentary setback, even. This is exactly the moment before momentary setback. Uh, so I, I remember calling home on February 2nd, to kind of recap this whirlwind of a week. Uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd was, was rumored to be on his way to the house to come and hang out and write maybe, and you know, whatever. He ended up not showing up, which is a good thing because when I talked to my mom, she said that my ex-girlfriend had called. And uh, so I called up my ex. We had had a last roll in the hay right before Christmas. And uh, she calls me to tell me that, that that she was expecting my first child. Well, so that was the day before I was supposed to come home from that first trip, and that was kind of a the, the kickoff to like <laughs> that's really the kickoff to my my professional career. I and, got home and adulthood. What's that? And adulthood. Yeah, no doubt. You're welcome. Uh, I had just turned twenty that January. So I was definitely, you know, jumping headfirst into the deep end. Um, none of the labels out west bit on me as an artist. They didn't, they didn't think I had any, any enough product behind me and enough juice behind me. I didn't have a proper manager or booking agent or any of that stuff. So um, I thought Leah, the gal that flew me out there, I thought she would she would balk. You know, I thought she would walk as soon as she knew that that I was having a kid. I really, you know, swore up and down that I was coming home to get a job offshore, mm-hmm. working in the oil field. And I would play music, you know, sing covers and whatnot on the side, maybe, and get married and settle down, you know. But uh, when I called Leah up to thank her, uh, you know, my dad had already decided he was going to make a record on me. He said he would fund the project. And, and she says, okay, let's do it. I got a producer. Let's. I, I, I want in. That's great. And she ended up funding uh, Momentary Setback and put a record label together, Ripley Records, just for that record, which ultimately opened to sort of you know some some fanfare that that September. In fact, it was about seven days after my firstborn was born. Wow. September first of two thousand two was his birthday, and I think that record came out on the seventh of the ninth, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but that led to Diana Fragnito from Island Def Jam 
being down here by that point, I had already signed on with Brickwall Management, who had just uh, come off of some success with John Mayer, co-managing with Michael McDonald. Uh, they had, at the time, a band out of Pittsburgh called the Clarks. Mm. I think they were also... They, they just they definitely had enough stroke to be able to pull some strings and get me on tour with Maroon 5 leading up to that release. So I had a little heat coming to that release. And uh, by that point, Diana was sold. IDJ flew me up to New York and we did a, a little bit of a showcase at SIR for all of the, you know, the executives there, Leora Cohen, asked a bunch, what do you think about this kid? And I, I can't believe they actually signed me. By that point, I was wearing this hideous faux suede fur thing because it was freezing in New York and I picked up, you know, at H&M for like 60 bucks. <laughs> I must have looked like a complete and utter fool. But they bit and uh, I signed my first deal with with Island Def Jam in the winter that's, that following year, 2003, they helped me kind of promote my own record for a while, and then we got in the studio again with Marshall Altman, uh, who had done Momentary Setback, and did my freshman major record called Karen Crow. Named, uh, named for home. Named for my hometown, that's right. Yep. So that's like kind of the brief synopsis of how I got into the business. That's great. Uh, so, and, and this... Uh, not to step on your uh, punchline at some point, but uh, whatever happened to this ex-girlfriend? Uh, she's, she's my wife and the mother of four of my children. <laughs> I thought so. I thought I might have met her the other day. So, uh, yeah, that's a great that's a great story. So, uh, and then with Karen Crow, I mean, you had, uh, you know, you're coming off, obviously, touring with some substantial openers and uh, getting some heat. I mean, I remember these records, you know, I remember these songs on the radio, um, back around you know 2004 2005 they were they were significant hits uh, on independent radio um, home particularly I remember uh, being you know it was a fantastic song um, so what what was going on then so you kind of you kind of hit you know your stride pretty early well yeah I mean I think we had a lot of love in that building um, but we lost a lot of momentum I was sort of a, a I don't know. I, I didn't really know what I was doing, to be quite honest with you. I thought, I thought by the time that I signed that deal that I had arrived, it was it was not really an opportunity as so much as a destination for me. So I, I kind of had my eye off the ball, but at the same time, I was trying to be a you know pull rock star moves and and make determinations and fight battles that I might shouldn't have. But needless to say, Lee or Cohen left the gig and took the, the job over at Warner and slowly but surely over the next year or two uh, the entire structure of the company followed suit mm-hmm. they either left the company followed Lee or, or left the business altogether and uh, by the time I made a second record for them L.A. Reed was the new chief I had a new A&R guy who definitely did his best to go to bat for me um, but ultimately they weren't going to release my second record it got shelved and at that point I asked to be let go uh, and didn't really have much of a plan somebody suggested hey let's do a covers record 
since we don't have, I, I couldn't re-record all that material that I had just re-recorded. Mm-hmm. That I recorded for my second record. Just out of out of uh, exhaustion on your part, or you know, fatigue. Actually, I couldn't, oh, you couldn't record that material just yet. There's a, a you know, there's usually a, a re-record restriction in, in most record deals that tends to run in the seven to ten year range. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways. Uh, I go in and start recording the Soul Covers album that we're tentatively calling SOS. And uh, I was in negotiations with Concord, who had just bought Stax, and they were talking about re-releasing Stax's 50th anniversary, kind of, you know, big fanfare year. And I was excited about the prospect of putting out this cool Soul Covers record you know, our, our vision going in was to re-record those tracks uh, and, and try to capture lightning in a bottle a second time um, to reintroduce songs that had influenced me early on in my life to maybe a fan base at that time that was pretty young. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just coming off of a bunch of touring with Maroon 5 and Gavin DeGraw. So the crowd was, was about my age uh, in, in, on average. And I don't. I didn't think a lot of them really knew some of these deep cuts. So we really didn't change the arrangements or the uh, or, or even the, the fidelity or the sonics uh, of those original recordings very much at all. Which, in fact, we tuned congas and and you know uh, found shakers and, and and really really worked hard on mimicking those early recordings as best as possible. Yeah, I mean, and I know your cover of "Love and Happiness," the Al Green tune. I mean, that's a very faithful. Yeah, there was, and there was real intention behind it. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, uh, it, it was. There was a real intention to, to really introduce these things exactly how I had heard them, how we had all heard them. And anyways, whenever John Burke at Concord heard the the, the master versions, he was. He was really upset. He <laughs> thought that, that we had, uh, you know, that the critics were going to eat us alive. But he loved one song. He loved the original. He loved uh, Coming from the Cold. Mm-hmm. And he ended up pushing George Benson to cut that a, a few years later. But he walked away from the, the deal. And Vanguard, Kevin Welk over at Vanguard, scooped it up sight unseen. They, in fact, they threw me... I think they threw me twenty-five thousand more dollars than Concord was offering, just to make it happen. And uh, that record ended up doing fairly well. It got me overseas for the first time, and you know, really got me back on the road. I was able to have another album cycle, which is ultimately what we were really after in the first place. You know, I, I needed to get out there. It's two thousand six. Karen Crow had come out in two thousand four. It was time for a new record, so. Uh, it did the trick and then it was a one record deal and apparently Kevin Welk tells a story about him being at some charity golf tournament and he's sharing a table with Rick Krem now Rick and I go way back since uh, that that gal Leah that got me my first start mm-hmm. she and Rick were really close <clears throat> he was at my, one of my first showcases at Ocean Way in that on that first trip and uh, they're talking about me within earshot of Lior Cohen who happens to run Atlantic Records at that point and apparently 
Kevin, as Kevin tells the story, Lior called business affairs on the spot and said, drop the paperwork. So he signed you twice. Yeah, Atlantic made a really strong offer. I ended up signing a pretty big publishing advance and, uh, and, and a record advance and spending every dime of it in the stock market crash of 08 <laughs> no. and then a, a record called Keep Coming Back. That's a yeah, that's a strong one. So uh so Lior Cohen signs you twice. Uh that's a pretty funny uh, that seems pretty unusual. Um, I think I was the only artist from IDJ to go to Atlantic. Okay. That's a, that's interesting too that, that that he would leave. I guess it's not his choice to leave as many artists as he does on his former label, but that's great that he had the opportunity to do that again. I do actually go back a, to go back a little bit. I know you know you said you had you know you were sort of feeling yourself around you know in your early twenties when your when your record first hit. It is a it is a funny thing to kind of think you're going to be famous and and you know conquer the world and and then kind of have to recalibrate a little bit uh, i did it myself so um you know so the recalibration what's important but you kept going forward which is great well yeah i mean i didn't really have much of a choice i had kid, you know i had three kids by the time i was 26 uh 27 and uh it was really important for for me to to bring home some bacon for the for them by that point for yeah. sure. It's a dirty uh, room that kids like to eat. Yeah. And I was surrounded. I've always been surrounded on on the tour side, you know, by really class individuals who I enjoyed working with a lot, and I still work with uh, almost you know all of them to this day. My drummer's been with me for fifteen or sixteen years, and my guitar player's kind of been in and out of the game with me for for that long. Uh, so those guys always tended to, to get me back out of the house pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always, we always had a touring base. We could always go out and tour. Mm-hmm. That was the one thing that we really had going for us from jump. But I will say by the, by the time 2011 rolls around, uh, I did two releases for Atlantic uh, the Keep Coming Back album and then the follow-up to that was a, a self-titled release. And both of them did really, really poorly. Uh, I think they they were both kind of transparent attempts at something that, that nobody could quite put their finger on, not even myself. And uh, it showed. So I got released from my Atlanta contract uh and I was really devastated. I, I showed no income in 2011. I ended up picking up a gig at a buddy of mine's cabinet shop to make some Christmas things happen. Um, fired my second manager and called up my brother who, who was tour managing a guy called Joshua Raiden at the time. Yeah. And Joshua was managed by Debbie Wilson who I had known from her days of managing Gavin DeGraw. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, what's what's the situation over at Willsboro? And my brother gave him high marks, said they were doing a great job for Josh. And uh, I called them up and they seemed interested. Doug Shaw, Debbie's partner in crime and nephew, uh, flew down. And he and I really didn't hit it off, to be quite honest with you, right, at, right away. Uh, he's kind of square, but... By that point, I was really 
anxious to get serious about business and I knew that I didn't need a friend as a manager. I had just let one go. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since I signed on with Wilsboro, I think that was sometime shortly before 2012 uh, or 2013, things have really been incredible. I mean, we've, we've, we've been managed to really <laughs> take control of things. We signed a deal with Vanguard. We did one record with them. And uh, and then I've done some independent releases since then, and we're, there's no looking back. Well, that's that's what I wanted to ask you about. Is you know I, I had the distinct pleasure of meeting you uh, backstage at City Winery in Boston, where you had two sold out evenings. Um, you were with your wife, uh, who's lovely, and your band, who you know seems to to you know travel very comfortably as a unit. At what point, you know, I mean, do you become a like a working touring musician? And the industry changes in your wake. Um, how is that trend? How do you how do you you know sort of manage that transition and what expectation comes with that then? Well, it's it's difficult to say, and and I think it's something that's going to be evolving for a long time. I think for me, it started about four years ago, uh, as I hit you know my early thirties. I started to really really take seriously my role in this life and in this world, I started to see that I, I'm in front of a lot of people on a regular basis. And so I started to seek out more purpose, I think. And that, that's led to, uh, to some really interesting developments for me. <laughs> I started a foundation around that time, around four years ago, and started making records uh, for charity. <clears throat> because I was on major labels for my career, I never needed record revenue mm-hmm. because I never saw it. And in, in other words, because I never recouped a dime from making those records, I never Missed saw it. any revenue that was generated uh, on behalf of those records and therefore never came to rely on that revenue. So when I went independent and started seeing that stream come my way, I realized that there was something I could do to redirect the, the, the karma, if you will, associated with those record dollars Mm -hmm. and instead of keeping the lights on in apartment buildings and in new york city and and office buildings in new york city we could maybe keep the lights on in the kids hospital or a women's shelter or you know different causes that i'm particularly passionate about And, and the good news is that i stand in front of a group of people on a regular basis on on almost every weekend out of the year uh that's several hundred people strong and and they like believe me when I tell them about these organizations that I find that that are doing incredible things for severely underserved communities. So that's something that I find has given me a whole lot of juice uh, moving into this this kind of I don't know if I call it the the back or the middle, but um, this I, I tell you I'm having a good time and I, and I'm I'm definitely. What's, feeling a lot of fulfillment from it. It's contagious. I mean, your your philanthropic work goes back to post Katrina, you know, just post Katrina, and uh, I mean, so you've been, you know, you've had this, you know, f- uh, this part of your philosophy is has been part of your career really since uh, you were in your early twenties. Yeah, but it's it's become substantially more integrated, I think, as I've thought more deeply about the whole the whole deal. And I'm not going to lie to you there definitely ancillary benefits 
Uh, and there are unintended consequences in, in the good and the bad, uh, you know, that, that I think I definitely didn't see coming. I, I definitely had a twist in my manager's arm when it came to launching the SOS Foundation and, and giving away. I wanted to give away as much money as we possibly could. I wanted to give away 100% of the proceeds. My manager convinced me to give away half of the proceeds so that we could, you know, bring in some investor dollars to the table, which we still need to do uh, for those projects and, and pay those people back and, you know, do the things necessary to promote the record so that it's actual, an actual successful project. Um, but you know, moving forward, they're on board a hundred percent because what they saw, uh, was a really, really beautiful organic growth in my, in my business on all fronts, the moment that we stepped out in this intention. So, I think for for all intents and purposes, uh, it's a product that that I think other artists ought to employ. Mm-hmm. Um, the rising I, tide of altruism. Yeah, man. This you know it might seem kind of utopian, and and it definitely can get that way in my head at times. Um, but I've always had delusions of grandeur. And that's <laughs> why I'm in the music business. Well, speaking of of. Uh, Delusions of grandeur. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about and bring you back to earth was, uh, you know, what's it like to work as a as a touring musician, as a live musician, with four kids at home. You know, it's difficult. It's, it's uh, I think I'm particularly well built for for life on the road. I, I can kind of go with the flow, if you will, but it's definitely made more difficult when things are not going great at home my wife is a saint and she does a really good job of hiding that stuff from me while I'm out there uh, everything seems to be copacetic and then she you know kind of lets me in on the goods whenever I get back home uh, which is really kind of her mm-hmm. uh, I think it's gotten really more difficult as my oldest has gotten older he's about to be 17 he's a, he's a musician he's as well he's starting to feel himself he's a musician as well uh he does fairly poorly in school up until this point and he's definitely been a handful no doubt about it but in the grand scheme of things i'll tell you man uh i'm very very fortunate my my folks are right across the street literally a hundred 20 yards across the street. My brother is across the street about 300 yards the other way down down the road. My mother-in-law is a 10-minute drive from here. I have a really strong support system and, and, uh, you know, a strong sense of community here as well. And they're all rooting for you. Yeah, man, I, I think... For the most part, we got it well in hand. Well, I just I will uh, I'll let you go shortly because I know you've got a lot to do. But I had two uh, two quick things I wanted to ask you about. One was uh, um, your work with the uh, Southern Soul Assembly. When did that fit in? Man, it was such a dream come true to work with guys, uh, especially those guys. I had been talking to my manager for a while about putting an ensemble show together. And it, it just so happened that JJ was thinking the same thing at the same time, and uh, and they, I had the good fortune that they thought of calling me up. Uh, but it's you know, so for first the, of all, I was already a massive Anders Osborne fan. 
Jay Gray's name for years and uh, was anxious to meet him. And Luther Dickinson and I had crossed paths several times on, on various festival stages and whatnot. And I loved Luther. And uh, I, was, I was tickled pink, to be quite honest with you, because those guys historically have kind of occupied a different circle than, than I have. Uh, you know, they get calls for, for jam band festivals that I never got calls for and blues festivals that I never got calls for. So I, I was just really excited about being welcomed into a, another set of another set of players. And and they definitely welcomed me with open arms. I wish that that thing had taken uh, root more than, more than it did. I wish we had made a record. I really, quite frankly, thought we might very well be the... Uh, I just thought it was such a powerful group that had so much potential, but we're all so damn busy on our own. Yeah. It didn't really pan out that way. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, the one thing I will be remiss in doing uh, before I let you go is uh, retelling the uh, Santa Claus story that I heard backstage. Uh, if you will uh, bless us with that one, and then I, I will let you get back to your uh, household chores and, and get the Santa place. Claus story. Oh, you're talking about when I broke the news? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I I tend to, to come from a generation, old generation, where our, our dads and our moms didn't want to talk so much to us about about the birds and the bees and whatnot. And I decided a long time ago that I wasn't going to let my kids go through that. So uh, I was coming back from a run, and it was getting close to Christmas time. And my oldest was about 10, so his little brother would have been about 7. And uh, the wife says, you know, the boys are being jerks, and they're asking for really, really nice things at Christmas time. So I said, all right, I guess it's time to break down the first wall. Kind of had that first convo, and I walked in the boys' room, and I kicked the little brother out, and big brother's up in the top bunk, and I said, son, I'm here to dispel a myth. Do you know what that myth might be? And he said, is it a legend? And I said, yeah, it's the legend of Santa Claus. You're looking at him. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, I'm Santa Claus. And not only that, but I'm the Tooth Fairy, and I'm the Easter Bunny, too. Now look, son, you've been asking for some real nice things, but you've also been being a little asshole to your mama. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think he got the message. Uh, you know, it's interesting, man. I, I've, I've enjoyed being a dad for sure, but I'm, I'm definitely working above my pay grade when it comes to this 17-year-old. I try to get through to him as honestly and calmly as I can, but... I'm struggling with it, boy. Goodness. <laughs> well, this is uh, this has been um, a parental teaching moment from uh, touring musician Mark Broussard. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, thanks so much for coming on, Mark, and uh, I look forward to catching you guys next time you're around or next time I, we cross paths in any city that you're in. But uh, I appreciate it, and I love your work, and uh, thanks so much for coming on, Brother, Brother, Brother. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Thanks so much for having me, and Hopefully we uh, we cross paths soon. I hope so. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Take care, fellas.
I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.